Well, good morning, and let me uh, add my own Merry Christmas to you all. I'll go ahead. Brad did it. Merry Christmas. I'll say it again. That's my test to see who's already asleep. Um, We're just 30 seconds into the sermon. Uh, But this morning we continue in our sermon series this Advent, Joy Unmeasurable. And so I invite you to turn in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. We're going to beginning in verse 25. But as you're turning there, so we think about joy and we think about Christmas, there's a lot that can come to our minds. Things we love, things that bring joy. I know for many of us that includes time with family, time of uh, worship, time of celebrating the Messiah. Uh, but if you think about all the things that give us joy at Christmas, I'm willing to bet that one of them that is not very joyful or very exciting is waiting. We all wait at Christmas, though, don't we? Whether we wait in line at a store or whether we are waiting uh, in line at a restaurant or whether we are uh, waiting for something more life-transforming, such as graduating from school or possibly waiting uh, for a spouse. We might be waiting for a new job. We might be waiting for children. We might be waiting for family to come to town. We might be waiting for Santa Claus. We might be waiting for a certain gift. Still, some of us, we might be waiting to hear back from doctors about test results. But regardless of whatever it is this Christmas, really all of life is filled with waiting, is it not? We're not prone to sit still and have to wait, are we? Louis Zamperini had to wait 47 days on a life raft in the Pacific Ocean in May of 1943 when his B-24 bomber crashed on a search and rescue mission. Of the 11 crewmen, eight were killed and only he and two others survived and only he and one other made it to land. But he had to wait every day through great trial, enduring terrible heat and starvation, threat of circling sharks. And once he finally made land, he had to wait two more years in Japanese POW camps, every day enduring great torture and pain. And his story of redemption and forgiveness is remarkable. You can read about it in the book Unbroken, or the movie is coming out uh, this Christmas Day. I think of my own grandparents from that same generation as he, who waited for each other. My grandparents were married one spring day in 1942, and two days later my grandfather was shipped to Italy. And they didn't see each other for three years. Like so many other couples, they waited every single day. I think about my grandmother waiting for news from my grandfather, who was wounded twice and twice received the Purple Heart. Waiting, sometimes anxiously, sometimes in boredom, but waiting nonetheless. And I like to think of and imagine, though no one's ever heard the story, but I like to imagine what the moment must have been like when they were finally reunited. Like so many other couples, not only of that generation, but even today. Think of all the videos on the internet that instantly go viral of military service, men and women coming home and greeting their children, or the the joy on their faces, and the joy on the faces of the men and women who have come home is just beautiful. We all know what it's like to wait. We all know what it's like to have the joy of that waiting finally ended. But I want to ask us this morning, what are we waiting for? What are we longing for? Because today in Luke chapter 2, we're going to meet a man who had been waiting for probably a very long time. 
And it's my hope and prayer this morning that in the story of Simeon, we can each sense the joy and the anticipation of the wait that is finally over. And I pray that all of us will experience that very same joy this Christmas. So uh, let's bow for prayer once again before we open the text. Lord, this is your word. And the same spirit that gave news to Mary, that revealed to the angels and to the shepherds keeping watch over their flock with that spirit that led Simeon into the temple. And Mary and Joseph, we pray that that spirit would meet with us here and now. That you would open your word to us, that we would behold magnificent things from your truth. Amen. Luke 2, beginning in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It was no accident that Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple that very day. Not only because the Spirit had been leading them, but according to the law of Moses back in Leviticus chapter 12, after a firstborn child was born, every mother and father had to present themselves to the temple for uh, rites of purification. They were, a mother was ceremonially unclean after giving birth. Now, it didn't mean that God was punishing mothers for giving birth, but not only was there a spiritual benefit, but in the in an age of, of very primitive medical techniques, uh, the importance of purification and being separate from a group of people was essential given all the diseases and infections. So after 40 days, it was time to go and offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering and a sin offering. Now, typically what would happen is when you'd bring uh, these two offerings, you would bring for the burnt offering a lamb. Now, why would a lamb be significant? A lamb, who's Jesus called in Revelation? He's the lamb of God. So for centuries and generations and day after day, year after years, people would bring lambs. Now in Luke, we have, we learn from uh, verses 22, just before our text, that they brought uh, these uh, animals for sacrifice. Now, Mary and Joseph, though, didn't bring a lamb. Because lambs were expensive. So not only do we learn in Luke chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph were very faithful believers and very devout worshipers, but also they were very poor. So the law made certain allowances. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could do a turtle dove or a pigeon. So they brought two turtle doves. 
no partridge in a pear tree, but they brought two turtle doves. And that's where, at least I think it is, where they comes from in the song at Christmas time. But they brought two turtle doves. So we see Mary and Joseph, faithful, believing parents of Jesus, but also very poor. So they brought not only for their own purification, but Jesus had to be presented in the temple himself. This is the sinless son of God. And yet Exodus 13 talked about how every firstborn or or firstborn that opened the womb of a mother, be it human or animal, was consecrated or belonged to the Lord. Now that's very interesting because when we typically think of the Exodus, we think of the firstborn of Egypt which died. But right after Exodus 12, God said, every firstborn, including Israel, belongs to me. So what would happen is, if you were of the tribe of Levi, you'd become a priest. You were a Levite. But if you were of any other tribe, and Jesus is of the tribe of Judah, you would go to the temple and you would offer a ransom. Or you would buy back, or you would purchase the firstborn. So instead of having to grow up in the temple and being set apart for service to God, although they belong to God, you could redeem your firstborn son. So here's Jesus, the Redeemer, being redeemed, which tells us right from the get-go. You know, we, know, we all know as believers that we're saved by the cross and his death. But we're also saved by Jesus' life, his life of perfect obedience. And here is sweet little baby Jesus, 40 days old, and he's already fulfilling the law on our behalf. It's good news that Jesus is brought to the temple because if he's going to be our substitute, then he's got to be perfect where all of us have fallen short. So they come in and they're offering... um, a sacrifice. Uh, uh, by the way, a, a turtle dove that was cheaper is about one-tenth the price of a lamb. So think of that when you're at Kiefer's uh, and having your gyro uh, or Christos. Um, that's expensive uh, meat. So here's Mary and Joseph bringing their boy to the temple to make a, sac- a sacrifice. And over hobbles this old man. Now the text doesn't say he was old, but most commentators and most people, we probably think that he was an old man. But he might have been a young man. But all we know is that this man probably had a tear in his eye. He's overjoyed when he sees this family and he sees this particular baby. Now any of you or any of us who have been newborn parents, right, in our, our days as we just talked about modern medicine and being hygienic and clean, Imagine when a complete stranger rushes up and wants to hold your baby, right? Now, I'm a sinner, and so I think, oh, where have those hands been? You know, I, I don't know if I want you touching my son or not. But Mary, remember, has been told wonderful things about who this baby is. And so she has no hesitation, no fear about handing her baby over to this dear old saint. Now, we're not told much about Simeon. We don't know where he grew up. We know he lives in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure if he was a priest or what his vocation or trade was. We don't know whether he went to state or Ole Miss or other important things about his biography. All God wants us to know is this man's character. Notice in the text, it tells us right away that he was righteous and devout. What a beautiful epitaph. Oh, that it could be said of every believer. This is so-and-so, righteous and devout. Now, 
We don't always call each other righteous. In fact, sometimes the word righteous or righteousness has maybe a negative connotation in the church today. And that's really a shame because all righteousness means, if we look back in the Old Testament, is trust in God. Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, was called righteous, not because he was a good man, not because he was necessarily did everything right. We know he didn't. But because the text says he believed God. And it was credited to him. It was given to him. It was granted to him. He was counted as one who was righteous. And so this is Simeon. We often think of people as being self-righteous. And that's certainly dangerous and no good. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were self-righteous. But this was a man who was well known for trusting and believing God. It also says he was devout. He was a faithful worshiper. He didn't go to the temple because it made him look good or because there was something in it for him. He went out of sincere worship and adoration of God. He was devoted to something. He was committed to it. He wasn't half-hearted. He wasn't someone who says, I'll go to the temple when it fits my schedule. Or I've got a lot going on this week and I don't know if I can make it. He was devoted. The text also tells us that he was waiting waiting for something so special, for the consolation of Israel. Now, to be sure, the conditions at this time in Israel of Jesus' birth were awful. Think of loss of political independence, a cruel and hateful king and Herod, the mockery of true religion, a legalistic group of Pharisees, a worldly-minded group of Sadducees, and complete silence for 400 years from the voice of prophecy in the Lord. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all this darkness and despair, God still has faithful men and women. If you read on past our text, you meet a a woman named Anna who is waiting for the same hope. And yet, in the midst of great trial, there are men and women who are waiting and hoping and believing and trusting God. How much more in our own time as well? We live in turbulent times. You don't need to have the television on for long or pull up the internet to know that it's a dark and despondent world. We hear of reports even yesterday of policemen in New York City gunned down and assassinated intently. And yet, how magnificent it is to know that God has people in the worst of places, and in the darkest of times. This consolation of Israel, we think of consolation, it's just another word for comfort. And I imagine Simeon knew well the passages in Isaiah, like Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Simply put, Simeon was waiting and longing for God to be faithful to his promise and rescue his people. And friends, this is what it means to be a Christian, to be a believer, to trust God and to wait in faith for him to do exactly what he says he's going to do. You know, when you read these promises in the scriptures, they're for you and me as well. We're at a different time in history, no doubt, but they're just as true and real today as they were thousands of years ago. Simeon 
is often called by commentators a sentinel. I love that image because a sentinel is one who typically is thought of as a guard standing post on a border, looking out into the darkness or the wilderness, looking for any threat or any rescue and comfort and help. He's standing post at the transition between the Old and the New Testaments. He was assigned by, the t- he's assigned by God to the task to point out the Messiah when he comes and to say, there he is. He's here. This is Jesus. This is the Lord's Christ. This is the Messiah. Now, Simeon had also been endowed with a very special blessing, we read. Notice that even well before Pentecost, we meet a man who's been endowed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit fills Simeon's life. Now, what's beautiful about Luke's gospel is he's already used the word and the the, um, noun for the Holy Spirit ten times. Luke is showing great care to show that the Holy Spirit is active and at work and working through all these events to bring them to fruition. Simeon's life was constantly influenced by the Spirit. His presence and his soul was so flooded with thanksgiving and praise that he was directed on a daily basis by the Holy Spirit. He was conscious of the fact, not that Simeon was a robot, Not that Simeon was living in some type of trance, but that he knew he was being led by God, even through small details, such as when to appear here or there, when to get up, when to go down. Simeon also had a special gift from the Holy Spirit. He was given the promise that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. As we've said before in this series, um, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Jesus means he will save his people, and Christ means the Messiah. It's his office. He's the Redeemer. He's the Savior. He's the one that has been spoken about from all the way back in the beginning. And Simeon had been given this gift. He will not leave this earth until he meets this Messiah. You can imagine Simeon walking around. Again, the text doesn't say, but you can imagine him walking around and looking in the marketplace or in the temple courts wondering, is he here? Where is he? Is he old? Is he young? I wonder if he imagined it would be a baby. Imagine he tapped on the back of a lot of shoulders, see their face, longing and waiting for this hope. Now, if you've ever wondered, does God really care about me or the details of my life, such as even insignificant things, look here at the story of Simeon which shows us that he directs all of our steps. And the Spirit has taken great care that at the precise moment when Joseph and Mary were bringing Jesus into the temple, in walked Simeon. It was no accident. And Simeon immediately recognizes salvation in the flesh. It was read earlier that Jesus is the Word made flesh. It's not just a belief and a doctrine. It's flesh. It's a human being. Salvation is literally cradled in the arms of this sinful human being, Simeon. Now, for many years, artists have been trying to capture on canvas the expression of joy that must have been on Simeon's face. And if you uh, Google, do it when you go home, not right now. Uh, But if you Google, uh, one of my favorite paintings is called Simeon's Moment. And you just see the expression of joy on Simeon's face 
to be holding the Messiah in his own arms. And he says this, he does what most of us do when we are overcome with emotion or joy. He bursts out in a song and has this beautiful hymn of praise. He says, Lord, now some translations even say sovereign master. He recognizes his station and his place in relation to almighty God. He says, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now Jesus is yet to grow up. He's yet to live a perfect life on our behalf. But already Simeon is giving us an insight into his role, into his person, into what he's come to do. You know, if you go to a bookstore, a Christian bookstore, you can read a lot of books about how to grow as a Christian. And discipleship is a word that gets thrown a lot, thrown around a lot in the church. What does it mean to grow as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ? What does a deep and mature Christian look like? And there are many of, of mature believers, I'm looking at your faces right now, who have encouraged and edified even me personally. But if you want to know what deep maturity and godliness looks like, look here at Simeon. Now here is a man who is a sinner, don't get me wrong, and he knows it because of how he speaks. But here is a man who so longs for Jesus that once he's met him, he's ready to die. Merry Christmas. He's met the Messiah. Doesn't get any better than this. There's nothing more important than knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nothing. As great as everything else is and as great as everything that we celebrate at Christmas and God is a God of great and, and immeasurable beauty and talent and so many things to give thanks for. But it's about Jesus. It's about the Messiah. It's about meeting the Savior. It doesn't get any better than this. J.C. Ryle says about Simeon, he speaks like one for whom the grave has lost its terrors and the world its charms. He's ready to go home. Simeon knows that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And only spirit-given faith can lead us to such hope and contentment. You won't find it in anything else that this world has to offer. And I ask each of us this morning, here today, right now, do you so long for Jesus Christ? The joy that Simeon's had can be your and my joy too. Do you so long with anticipation that you can't wait to see the Messiah, that your faith to become sight? This is not a morbid or sordid hope. To know Jesus, to know that you're secure in Him and in Him alone, that there's nothing that this world can throw at you. There's nothing anyone can do to you. You're free in Jesus Christ who has loved you and who has gave Himself for you. If you don't long for Him, you can. You can pray to the Lord that He would give you such hope and joy and contentment and peace. 
We also see here in Simeon a clear understanding of Jesus' life and work, which is an encouragement because sometimes we think about all the Jews, particularly the Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, who opposed Jesus and who didn't recognize the Messiah. But here in Simeon and later in Anna are Jewish believers who get it, that Jesus is not just a good teacher or a good man who had some good ideas, or an example to follow, he has, as Simeon cries out, the light of the whole world, the light for Gentiles. For those of us in Mississippi, that's us. We're Gentiles. Unless you were born Jewish, then you're Jewish. But you should know who you are. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And for the hope of Israel, he's glory. And I've lived here six and a half years. I haven't, uh, we love the South, but I haven't gotten enough uh, Southern uh, dialect in me to say glory. But if there ever was a chance to say glory, he's the glory of Israel. In the sense, and the the reason (laughs) you're laughing, I'm serious. I love the way it's said because glory is something that we throw around a lot. But glory in the biblical sense means a deep weightiness. And significance. And Israel in the Old Testament would have understand completely about glory because not only had they seen it, not only did it engulf and was the center of their life as believers, but glory, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory, was what led them in the wilderness. So this same glory that is their hope is the glory that guides them and leads them day by day. And Simeon says, Here he is in flesh. It's Jesus. Jesus himself later affirms this. If you've got your Bibles open, let's switch over to Luke chapter 4. Jesus, starting in verse 16, says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. I love it. They're waiting with bated breath. He just read this passage. What's this great teacher of the law going to say? How is he going to expound profound theological insight? What does it say? And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, it's about me. That's what Simeon's saying back in our text. He He has been the one who has been prophesied about, and he's now here. He's arrived. It says in our text, Mary and Joseph marveled at what Simeon had said. You know, it's pretty remarkable the fact that they marveled when you think about all that they've already seen. They've already, Mary's already had the angel appear. I mean, how terrifying would that be? But an angel appear and then you're going to give birth, a virgin birth. He's going to be the savior of the world. And then, as Brad talked about, the the journey to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is an old woman. She's pregnant. And the magnificence of, of their encounter, of the birth itself, of in a stable, no room at the inn. And these shepherds appear out of nowhere and say, a heavenly host has guided us here to this place on this night. 
And yet they meet this old man in the temple and they marvel at his words. To marvel at something is to be utterly amazed. And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in her children's book at Christmas, the one who has made us has come to live with us. But did you notice also in what Simeon says to Mary and Joseph that there's still something being carried out to this very day? Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus comes as Savior and Comforter, but he also comes to divide. In other words, Simeon is foretelling that a person's relationship or attitude towards Jesus would ultimately be decisive of a person's eternal destiny. That it doesn't matter where you come from or who you are or who your last name is or how much money you've got in your bank account or what you've done already. It doesn't matter your marital status. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. The only thing in eternity that divides is Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord and Savior? Or have you tried to go your own way to be your own Savior? Either he is or you are. And he's reminding us that that's still going on today, that those who would reject him would ultimately fall. But those that would receive him and trust in him would rise and be welcomed into the kingdom in its glorious feast forever and ever. And yet for those who have received that glorious blessing, there's still a paradox of joy in the text. Simeon then turns and looks at Mary And I wonder if he still had tears in his eyes as he said to her, and a sword will pierce your soul. Now we know about this account in Luke, probably, because Mary was the one who told it to him. And I wonder if as Mary was telling Luke about it, she got a lump in her throat. Because that sword that would pierce through her soul is the cross. And here we have great joy combined with great suffering. Not only Jesus' suffering, but of Mary's suffering. How amazing it is that the most wonderful and gracious event in human history, God sending his son into the world to the cross to, as Matthew 1 says, save his people from their sins. This gracious event caused indescribable grief for Mary. And this is important to note. As God works out the salvation of all his people, he sometimes leads us down unexpected paths. And those unexpected paths result in sometimes unexpected and agonizing pain. And when it does, we can remember Mary. The darkest moment in her life, the sword that stabbed deepest into her soul at the cross, was the exact moment that God used to bring salvation and joy to the whole world and to her. This is how God still works today in its own way. When the sword pierces our lives, when we encounter great suffering or trial, sometimes the sword feels like only terrible pain, that there's nothing else to it. 
But as John Piper writes, we discover that our deepest wounding often becomes the channel through which the most profound grace flows. Amidst great tragedy can be great triumph. And I don't know what God is often doing in my life or your life, but we can be sure that ultimately he has his purpose and his reasons. And that's Simeon's cry, and that's his hope. That's his joy. And so as we close this morning, I want to ask one question with two applications. How can we share in the joy that Simeon had while we all wait this Christmas? The first is a turning away from something, and the second is a turning toward something better. First, if we're to have this joy, our hearts and our lives must become disenchanted with the sufficiency of all the world around us. Now, we know God made the world and made it good, but sin so diseased and so decays and erodes our joy that it can offer up counterfeit gods and false idols, and we're inundated with them every day. Money, relationships, sex, anger, jealousy, envy, lying, cheating, our own glory, the glory of others. Luke 16 says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, scoffed at all this. Now, Pharisees were supposed to be teachers, but it says they were lovers of money. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Hebrews 12, verse 1, gives us great insight. The author of Hebrews writes, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The author of Hebrews says, Let us lay aside not only the sin, but every encumbrance, every trap, every trial that would try to break us down and lure us away from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian life, friends, is a battle. But the good news of the gospel is that the war is over. Christmas tells us the war is won. But we know, don't we, that every day is a battle and a struggle. And so we live as soldiers and we run a race that is a marathon, not a sprint. And how we equip ourselves to do this is cultivating this habit of discipline waiting or waiting like Simeon with hope who was devout and righteous. Eugene Peterson writes in his book, Traveling Light, the person who looks for quick results in the seed planting of well-doing will be disappointed. If I want potatoes for dinner tomorrow, it will do me little good to go out and plant potatoes in my garden tonight. There are long stretches of darkness and an invisibility and silence that separate planting and reaping. During the stretches of waiting, there is cultivating and weeding and nurturing and planting still other seeds. Life is not an adventure in that it's filled with mountaintop experiences of great ecstasy or happy bliss. Life is ordinary, but in its ordinariness, it's beautiful of daily living and being faithful to Almighty God, just as Simeon was. Not that we're called to be like Simeon, but as Simeon was righteous and devout and trusted God, so too can we live lives of disciplined waiting. So we turn away from the world and sin and the encumbrances which would trap us up, and we turn towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And we do that when we recognize who he is, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, and as our daily lives as we rest upon him as the consolation of Israel. And when you see Israel in there, just think of ourselves, the church, God's people, his hope, the only Savior of the whole world. And how this happens is remarkable. And it's not completely unrelated to the first point. God prepares a person to receive his Christ by sometimes stirring up these longings in our hearts, these desires that we have for hope and meaning and significance that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And this is what God does again and again. He may be even doing it for you this Advent season, graciously and tenderly frustrating your life until you find Him, the only source of hope and joy. Sometimes we think of our waiting and struggling as punishment or just cruel pain. But could it be that God is filling you with frustrations and struggles to turn our hearts to Himself, to shake off the shackles and bondage of false idols? So are you frustrated? Listen to your heart. Watch your lives. Get around fellow believers who can speak truth and love to you. A professor of mine in seminary wrote a book called Grace Grows Best in Winter. And sometimes that's true. So set your heart on Jesus Christ this morning because if there's any deep longing in your heart for hope and comfort, this world can't satisfy it. And it could be that God is preparing you to recognize and receive his gift at Christmas, Jesus Christ. Don't seek it anywhere else but in him. God owns and controls all things. There's nothing he could give you this Christmas that would suit your needs and longings better than himself. Restoration for past losses, liberation from future enemies, forgiveness and freedom, pardon and power, healing the past, and giving hope for the future. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in prison, engaged to be married. He would not be married. He'd be executed. And his reflections on Advents writes this, a prison cell in which one waits and hopes and is completely dependent upon the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. And that's all of us in sin, in our prisons, with no hope unless someone opens the door to freedom from the outside. And the good news of Christmas is that door has been flung wide open. And who's made it possible is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The joy that Simeon had was because he knew and understood not all the facets of it, but he knew the reality of it. And you can have it too this morning if you would only let go of everything else you've been holding on to and look to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for stories like that of Simeon. And thank you for Mary and Joseph and their love for you and bringing Jesus to be presented at the temple and obeying the law so that we now are counted as righteous in him. That we now have hope because of him. That the consolation of Israel is our consolation too we can be comforted and Lord help us to turn away from and as Hebrews says to lay aside every sin and every weight of encumbrance and to simply look to you our only hope and our only redeemer in your name we pray amen